Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Well, guys, today in this passage out of Daniel, it's, it's uh, one of the most one of the more well-known ones. It's kind of like the, the, uh, the passage about the fiery furnace in chapter three of the lion's den in chapter six, which, which we're gonna be getting to. This is one of the most memorable stories in the whole Bible, and it's regarding the handwriting on the wall. And so as we lean into this today, we're gonna find that chapter five kind of pops out of nowhere. You're like, where did this thing come from? What's happening? And we've been dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar all the way up to this chapter and chapter one, two, three, and four, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. So we learned from actually King Nebuchadnezzar about pride last week, but now chapter five, there's a new king. What in the world happened between chapter four and chapter five? And his name is King Belshazzar. So after King Nebuchadnezzar, we know he ruled for 43 years. His son followed on the throne. Now this this is what I'm about to tell you. It kind of feels like a movie. He was, and his son that followed Nebuchadnezzar was assassinated by his brother-in-law. Sounds like some of your families. But anyway, that was funny. Come on. That was, whether you laugh or not, it's funny. So he reigned for about four years, but then he died of natural causes. But when he died, his son was appointed king, who was very young. And he ruled for one month because he was then assassinated as well. And one of those assassins took the throne, and his name was Nebonidas, King Nebonidas. Then King Nebonidas had a son, Belshazzar, which is the last king of Babylon. And that is who we come to today out of Daniel chapter 5. So there's a 20-year gap from the end of 4 to the beginning of 5. And you might think, well, that doesn't make sense. This isn't a very good um, book. This isn't a very accurate historical book. Well, you need to understand the point of Daniel was never to be written to give history lessons about the Babylonians and the Persians. It was written to encourage the people of God that, that God is faithful, that you can live for God in an ungodly culture, which the series is about. It was to encourage them to be confident in God's sovereignty and God's control, that you can understand God in the midst of, of difficult times, in the midst of a culture that seems like it's shifting and going crazy, we actually have a purpose and a call, and that we can live for God in an ungodly culture, and Daniel shows us how. That's the purpose of this book. And so a little side note that because I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to um, Bible stuff. It's really cool. The, the phrase at the beginning of chapter 5 that we're going to read in just a moment, King Belshazzar, was used really against the accountability, excuse me, against the accuracy of the Bible because in all of the ancient Babylonian documents, he's not in them. And so King Belshazzar, many times they was used as scrutiny against the Bible because they said, no, King Nabonidus was the last king. That's what it's shown. That's what it, it's seen. But what's really interesting is um, they actually use it in several different locations saying the Bible can't be trusted, the Bible can't be true. But archaeologists discovered in the beginning of the 20th century what they called Nebonidus clay cylinders. And they're a collection of cylinders that were used back in those days to record um, events and different leaders and different things that's happening in Babylon. But they were, they were found. They actually are in the British Museum today. And on the cylinder reads that Nebonidus appointed his son as co-regent. In other words, co-leaders, co-kings. 
And Belshazzar reigned in Babylon, and Nebonidus reigned in Arabia, which then, lo and behold, confirms that the Bible was right all along. Isn't that awesome? I think it's great. I think it's cool. But when you live for God in a godly culture, you're going to be told the Bible isn't true. You're going to be told, no, no, that's, that's just a bunch of fairy tales, a bunch of stories, but just hang tight. Time will tell and show that the Word of God is accurate. It was right on. It's inspired by God, and you can anchor your life to it. Amen? So that's good stuff. Daniel chapter 5. This chapter is another reminder of the Most High God is the one who is ruling and reigning on the earth. But it's also, it's important for us to understand that in the, in the forefront of our minds as we are living for God in an ungodly culture, in the midst of ungodliness, that you're not living for man, but you're living for the one who has ultimate authority on the earth. Now, the other mindset of that is this, well, then there's nothing I can do. If God's in control, then what, what am I worrying about? But that's actually not the case because God never does anything alone. He always invites people to be a part of what he wants to accomplish. And so God is the ultimate authority, but he has appointed and called you to be his, his ambassadors on the earth to carry out with him the purposes and the kingdom of God. And we see Daniel doing that in the midst of this. And so there are going to be times where you're going to feel like the, the culture has gone too far, shifted too far. This is crazy, which is kind of where we are today. But you need to understand, regardless of what happens, God is the one that's in control. Regardless of what happens, the God that you serve will continue to lead and will continue to be the one who makes the calls. But he does invite us into the journey to help us. So I want to come to Daniel 5 as we look at this. And so we know this, that man thinks they are in charge, but really it is God who is in charge, right? That's really who's in charge. So as we come to Daniel 5, we begin to see the beginning of this incredible story, how God used Daniel, but also how God is the one that's in charge. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. You can read in your Bibles. You can jump on your phones as well. I'm going to reading from the NIV or the, the, script, the scriptures are going to be on the screen that you can follow along. We begin. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with him. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. I want you to catch that for a moment. So the king, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. They brought these, these sacred items so the king can use them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. When living for God in an ungodly culture, so important we understand, number one, that there will be events and situations of deliberate mockery and blasphemy of God. It's just going to happen. You need to be aware of it, and you need to, to know what does God, what am I supposed to do then? And that's what we see in Daniel. The backdrop of this event that we just read was one of mockery and blasphemy against the most high God of Israel. 
This event was designed, was crafted, was, was set together to exalt the gods of Babylon while giving mockery to the God of Israel. What's happening here, you have a thousand very important people, political leaders, businessmen, wealthy, powerful people. And they were, they were, they were presented with a deliberate act and, and hear me today, this, this whole thing, and I'm not meaning to sound rude, but this whole event was structured to extend the middle finger in the face of Yahweh, the most high God of the Hebrews. And when Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather, overthrew Israel, he went into the temple and he took sacred items that were exclusively used for the worship of God Almighty, exclusively used to bring him honor, to bring him glory, exclusively, exclusively used for his purposes. They were holy. And so they were taken from the temple and they were brought to Babylon to be used however they wanted. So Belshazzar intentionally, this moment, sends one of the slaves to go and get the holy Jewish vessels that came from the temple, bring them to his party so he can use them to indulge in debauchery and drunkenness. And his thought is, I'm going to bring him here and I'm going to show my might as the king, not, o not just over Babylon, but as the one who's over the God of Israel. And while they drink wine from vessels consecrated to the God of Israel, they praised and they used them to worship the God of the Babylonians. This is mockery, it's blasphemous. To give context of what's going on, the, there's a moment as the vessels come in that are, that are set aside for God Almighty. The signal is given for the music to stop. Listen, this is a pagan, pagan event. So the exotic dancing stops, the attention turns to King Belshazzar and he takes the holy vessels created to honor the pure God of Israel and he fills it with Babylonian pagan wine that was used to make sacrifices to other gods. And then with a smirk on his face, he makes a toast of arrogance to his gods and to himself. And as the red wine dribbles down his chin, he looks around the room with glaring eyes to say, I am the one who has conquered, mocked, blasphemed, and defiled the God of Israel. Where is the God of Israel? Everyone's attention is quiet at first. But then after the blasphemous act, they erupt in cheers and continue on with their debauchery. We know this, my friends, there will be times in our culture that what is being celebrated and what is being carried out will be done with the sole purpose to mock and to blaspheme the Most High God whom you and I serve. Now what it means to mock, it means an, an absurd demonstration. It's, it's something that's perverted. In other words, the wrong version. It's a misrepresentation. It's a imitation for the purpose of mocking God. To blasphemy means to do something on purpose directly against God. It's on purpose. An act that is intentionally disrespecting the God most high. And really what 
what it really means is to declare publicly that you and whatever you are doing is beyond the reach of God. Therefore, I'm greater than him. It's going to happen. It happens today. What God created as holy, it will be used as mockery towards God. To say, where are you, God? Where are you? In these situations, Christians can begin to freak out because it's natural. We can lose hope. We think, man, God, what's going on? Do something, God. And, and, and we, be, we can begin to, to buckle in fear and, and frustration under the blasphemous atrocities. Or we can even begin to get mad and bitter and angry. You can't treat God that way is what resonates in our hearts. And you can begin to think this right here, I must defend my God. But you must remember, friends, number two, God is the one responsible for defending his own name. You need to remember that. We can lose sight of that at times. We are to give a defense of our faith. That's what it says in the Bible, but we are not to be the ones who defend God. Just so you're aware, he does not need our defense. He can handle it. We are not to be militant and, and declare us as the defender of God. God is quite capable to handle it. There was another group who felt like they needed to defend God as well. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when Jesus walks on the scene, they, they thought, no, 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 you, you are blaspheming God is what they told Jesus. That's why they crucified him. And so why is it that we don't defend God? Because I'll tell you why. Because we aren't perfect. Because we have ulterior motives. Because we are still, though we are saved, we are being conformed to the image of God. It is not my place to defend God, but it is my place to defend the faith that I place in God. It is my place to prove scripturally and, and historically and archaeologically how our God is true. But I'm not to defend God, but I am to defend my faith. I am to express what I believe in. But when someone mocks God, that's between them and God. And so in this blasphemous act, we see God choosing to defend it. Daniel was there the whole time. He wasn't at the party, but he'd been around. This was not the first time this had happened. But we see God. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. I want you to see this for a moment. There was no arm, there was no body, but a hand from the wrist to the fingertip. A hand that appeared out of nowhere in the, in the light flickering from the candlestick and you begin to hear the plaster carve and fall on the ground. The writing of this hand on the wall of this king, his very own palace. It had to be a moment, man. What's that noise? I, I, I don't know, but what's that hand? And I don't believe there's ever been in history a situation where a man who was drunk sobered up so quickly at this moment. Verse six, Daniel, Right, so he says that his face, speaking of the king, turned pale 
And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Belshazzar was not just a drunken slob and a, and a perverted pagan individual. He was a profane drunken slob. And he saw the fingers of a man's hand writing on the palace wall and he melted. He totally melted. His face drained of color. His lower body lost all strength. And as you look further into the translation, the original language says this, the knots of his lines were loosed. Many scholars believe he lost control of his bladder and bowels. This man was confronted with God defending himself. See, in this moment, you think, I wonder how many times God had given him a chance. We don't know. That's why it's not our place sometimes. We also need to know there are things, where, things we don't see when we're interacting with people. Our job is to be what Jesus told us to be, salt and light. We, we, don't, we don't see how many chances God gave this king. We don't see how many times he, he could have changed, but he chose not to. We must remember that God, our God is a God of mercy, long-suffering, the God who introduces himself out of Exodus 34 is the one of compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the character of God, what we just read. This is how he introduced himself. You need to know something. God gives grace. He gives love. He gives chances. He gives warnings. And he offers forgiveness for sinners. And he did it for us. But there will come a time that God chooses and says enough is enough. And so God stepped into this deliberate mockery and debauchery and blasphemy of his name. And after the hand appeared and the words had been written on the wall. Verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Because, because him and his father are one and two. The next person would be the third highest. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. Now we come to the introducing of a woman. It's the queen. And when you first read this, you think this is his wife came, but actually it wasn't Belshazzar's wife. This was more, more than likely the wife of King Nebuchadnezzar, the queen mother, because of her knowledge and what she said in these next verses. And the Bible goes on to say, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And the time of your father was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners or diviners. He did this because Daniel 
whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to, to interpret dreams, explain riddles. I mean, listen, about, listen how she explains, to solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of my exiles from my father, the king that brought you from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. And they could not explain it. So I have heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. I, wa I want you to be, just put yourself in the situation. Something about Daniel caused him to stand out. Why would the queen know about him? Why, would, why, why, would, why was this their understanding that we got to get somebody that can help us? He stood out. He was different. And when you live for God in a godly culture, number three, you need to understand your godly life will attract those in need of God. King Belshazzar needed God. He needed God to do something. He, just, what, he needs an answer. And when the king receives a sobering message from God and the culture around him, think about this, could not help him at all, couldn't offer him any solutions. He didn't have anything. And he realized that what he needed, culture was not able to provide. What comes to mind in, this, in these moments is a man named Daniel who has lived his life differently than the culture. Just like when God begins to, to reveal to the people around you the emptiness of their life without him. To reveal their spiritual barrenness. To reveal their, their, their bankrupt spiritual hearts. When they see by the Holy Spirit that they need a savior. When God reveals that the so-called truth and culture that they had, they had structured their whole life around and to celebrate and to propagate is actually a vacuum of substance, and there was nothing there. They will need what culture cannot provide for them, cannot answer for them. And they will be attracted to you because you are distinct, possessing what they need, because you're different. They will reach out to you because the culture that could not meet them where they are, they realize, I know of a person who lives differently. I know of a person, there's something about their life and they're gonna be attracted to you because they need the God that's inside of you. For Daniel, at this time, he was in his 80s. He had been through all these, all these different kings, six kings, he had been a prime minister. He'd been in a palace filled with one drunken, opulent banquet after another. The most popular, the most, the most popular leaders and political people. But here's what's beautiful. His reputation and his testimony had remained true to God through it all. He had not been marked by culture. He had not given in to culture. And when the rejection of God in the culture leaves people broken, hurting, empty, scared, anxious, and God begins to speak and deal with them and convict them, your godly life will attract them so that you can point them to the God that you serve. Listen, do not 
underestimate the power of a godly life. Do not do that. Do not think that your compromise of your truth and your beliefs is what the world needs. No, the world needs you to be distinct. The world does not need you to celebrate sin with them. They need you to set a, dis, a, a, a difference, make a difference with your life. Be distinct so that when they're actually broken in that culture, they'll say, who is it broken? And it's gonna be you. Do not buy the lie that you gotta love, you, you, you gotta compromise your beliefs in order to love people. No, you don't. You just love people, but you stand strong like Daniel. Because when they're broken, when they're hurting, guess who God's gonna bring to their mind? You. But if you look just like them, they're not gonna know. If you talk just like them, they're not gonna know. If you celebrate what they celebrate, you're not gonna know. They're not gonna know. A godly life will position you to be used of God when the world is hurting and God's dealing with their hearts. The scripture goes on, Daniel 13. So Daniel was brought before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, that you're filled with insight and understanding and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters tried to read the words on this wall. Like that, I mean, you, you gotta consider this. This wall, there's writing on the wall. Nobody could figure this out. And I'm told that you can give interpretations, solve difficult problems. If you read these words and tell, tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes and royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will become the third highest ruler in this kingdom. Now, I want you to picture this for a moment. The king, who has sobered up very quickly, face is pale, panic-stricken. His robes might be a little wet from the earlier incident. <laughs> Everybody is watching. The eyes are locked in on you as you stand before the king. You have this incredible opportunity of riches, the robe that signifies your position and power and authority, and to be the third. A thousand people of the, of the top echelon of, of culture is watching you. You stand. You command. You hold the room. Everybody's looking at you. This is a serious moment. And Daniel after being offered all of these things, responds, King, you may keep your gifts, verse 17, for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I want you to catch this truth, friends. When you're living for God in a godly culture, number four, you will, face, you will be faced with the temptation to sell out your character and God's calling for an opportunity. What an opportunity. This is about the motivation of your heart. Daniel could have interpreted with the motivation, I'm gonna get that gold and that robe and that position. But he didn't, he rejected it. And in an ungodly culture, all, there's always gonna be people more influential than you. More people more popular of power and wealth. And, and they'll make you promises and they'll, they'll invite you to the room, they'll invite you to, to the circle, they'll invite you to the, to the next level, they'll invite you to the promotion, just, um, if you could just do something for me, wink, wink, I'll throw you a bone. If you just compromise just a little bit in this area, it'll be worth your while. Think about Daniel in this context. One, he's, he's a very significant influential leader in Babylon. 
And, and some of the greatest places of pressure to conform is when you actually hold a position of significant influence or, or you are an influential individual. A godly person in a place of authority is a target of influential, wealthy, powerful people to manipulate and to try to manipulate you. That's the culture of the world. They're going to try to get you to do what they really want you to do. To do it their way, to do it this way, and it, it might, it, it'll pad your wallet just a little bit. But hey, that's the world. That's, that's why we do things. This is, again, this isn't about succeeding and you shouldn't do that. This is about you compromising your beliefs with the, with the purpose of I'm going to do this and compromise. I'm going to, I'm going to use my character and what God's called me to do. I'm going to shift it just a little bit so that I can get promoted, so I can get wealthy. And plus, this influential person who doesn't even know God is going to help me out. If you're not careful, sometimes we can, we can prostitute our giftings, our giftings and our call and think the opportunity is really what's greater than our hearts. Believe it or not, even for me as a pastor, this pressure exists for me to, to make decisions. I had to make a decision in my, in my heart a long time ago. I'm not, I am not determined to serve the wishes of men. I'm going to determine to serve the Lord first, and from that, I will serve the people around me. Meaning the decisions that I, that I make, and we make as a team here at the church, are first to be seeking what God wants in my life, what God wants for this church. Decisions are not made because of pressure and manipulation and, well, I'll do this if you do this, and if you'll add this, then we'll do this, and that's not, I would be a hireling, but we are not. We're pastors, and we're to remain true to the Bible and true to following God and true to serving him and true to asking him first and then serving the people from that. That's our hearts as pastors. We don't make decisions because of what people think or don't think or what they'll throw our way or not throw our way. We make decisions because we serve a living God and we will never compromise. We will serve him and him alone. Even as pastors, we have to dare to be Daniels. Every one of us has to. Paul says this in Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? In other words, he used to. Or of God, or am I trying to please people if I were still trying? See, he used to. He used to try to do it all for the sake of the praise of people. I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't have both. You gotta choose one. God, man. You can serve man from serving God, but you can't serve man, God if your number one priority is man. Now this doesn't mean we're not kind, we're not gentle. Doesn't mean we don't demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. It doesn't mean that we, that we want to please God and, and be kind and, and serve people. But it does mean we don't compromise. It does mean we don't take our cues from people. We do our best to take our cues from God. Because there's no greater freedom. For you, wherever you are, I want you to hear this today. There is no greater freedom than to remain unmanipulated and remain true to your call and true to your God. There's no greater feeling. 
Daniel says, I didn't come here for your stuff, king. <laughs> you think I want that robe? You're crazy. I'm going, I'm going to interpret this, but I'm not doing it for earthly riches. I'm not doing it for, for any of this stuff. I'm doing it because God called me to. I, listen, I don't need the stuff that my God actually gave you. I'm good. I'm a servant of God first. As Daniel begins to interpret, the king leans in. I mean, the captive audience. Daniel, using his gifts wisely here, thinks, I think I'm going to preach a little bit while I have your attention. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Again, that's another statement of God's the one in charge here. Because of the high position he gave them, he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived in, with the wild donkeys and ate grass with the oxen. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them any one he, God, wishes. So when you first read this, you think, well, maybe Belshazzar, this is the first time he had, he had heard about his grandfather. Belshazzar was his grandfather. So maybe you think, well, maybe he, this is the first time he heard it. So now that he heard it, he's like, you know what? Oh, I didn't realize this was wrong for me to use these vessels this way. I didn't realize it was wrong for me to, to, to live this way. I didn't realize it was wrong for me to be arrogant and be all about. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that God humbled my grandfather and he gave his life to God, the God of Israel. But that's actually not the case. Because Daniel goes on to say, but you, Belshazzar, his son or grandson, have not humbled yourself, though he knew all this, though you knew all of this. He already knew this. He had just chosen what he wanted to do. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You knew, Belshazzar, what God did to your grandfather, and still, you did what you did. He didn't change. Something for us to consider today, some of us have known the truth of the Bible for years. Maybe some of you young people even grew up in church, and you know the Bible. You, you, you know what it says. You, you, you know what God's done for you. You know what he's inviting you to. But that truth and the word of God, what you actually know has not captured your hearts. It's not made its way from your minds to your hearts. Listen, if that's you today, friends, listen to me. If you learn nothing else from today, learn from Belshazzar. That's a terrible way to live. God has so much for you. Surrender to him. The scripture goes on, verse 23, Daniel says, you had the goblets from his temple, capital H, his temple, God's temple brought to you. In other words, this was an intentional act. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. 
but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Verse 24, therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Translation, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now at this point, this doesn't make any sense. Nobody knows what it means. And then Daniel says, here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign, king, and brought it to an end. Doesn't say we'll bring it, but brought it. You have been weighed on the scales and found one team. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Paris. What's going on? I want to read to you this account, or excuse me, this writing from a historian that was writing about this situation at this moment. This is what he writes. The general of Cyrus' army was at the gates of Babylon this very moment, right when this was being spoken. Or may have been there as the party started in the beginning. He and his troops had diverted the waters of the Euphrates, and they were marching, he and his army, up the bed of the river into the city of Babylon, which lay on both sides of the bank. So the Euphrates River ran straight through the middle of Babylon. Impressive. And the river gates have been left unguarded. Babylon, supposedly secure behind the massive walls, was now as good as conquered. You might think, wow, what are the chances that while Daniel's doing this, that army's coming up this way, wow. But actually what was happening this night wasn't new information. Actually it had been spoken about over a hundred years ago by the prophet Jeremiah, who actually before the, the Hebrews went into slavery, the prophet Jeremiah was telling them, you need to repent, you need to stop worshiping idols, you need to, you need to stop doing this or you're gonna be taken away. Nobody listened to him. 50 years he said that, nobody listened to him. How'd you like that ministry? 50 years, no converts. Okay, great. But God told Jeremiah to tell the people of Israel, they're going to be taken into captivity, and I want you to tell them, give them this message. Now, over 100 years before this night, Daniel 5, God says, give them this message for their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. Who's the masters? The kings in Babylon. This moment, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever I see right to me. Scripture goes on, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson. That's Belshazzar. hundred years before this even happened. Until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings shall make him their, who's, their slave. Who? Him. Grandson. Him. Will make him their slave. In other words, a conquering time is coming. There's more accurate description of this in Isaiah 13 that actually lays everything out. What happened this night? 175 years before this ever happened, God said this is going to happen. This is not new information. After Daniel interpreted this is what happens. 
Then Belshazzar commands, Daniel was clothed in purple and gold chain was placed on his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel has to be thinking, did you not just hear what I told you? Am I missing something here? Daniel just said, it's over, king. God has spoken. And they put all the stuff on him and Daniel, the purple robe, He's knowing from a royal house that Daniel knows will not exist shortly. Gold that they're going to toss into a pile and melt it down very shortly. Pronounce the third highest ruler of the kingdom that will suffer annihilation. Hey, thanks a lot. Daniel had to be thinking, I don't want this stuff. Did you not just hear what I said? I mean, what's the good of a promotion when the company's bankrupt? What's the point of a lifetime achievement award? If you're dead, it's over, Belshazzar. And we find in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the one that Jeremiah just spoke of, the Mede, took over the kingdom. Listen, you can't tell me there is not a God who holds time in his hands, who is directing our lives, and he's inviting us to partner with him. He is the God that knows all, orchestrates all, and he invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And the last one, when we live for God in a godly culture, we must remember number five, God is the only one who holds the authority to pass final judgment, not you. So many times as Christians, we, we, we see ungodly culture taking what God meant for good, taking what God meant for holy, what God declares is righteous, and we see the ungodly mocking it, disrespecting it, and perverting it, or overriding God's word with their opinion. This can be very upsetting. I understand. In these moments, though, we can step into the place of God and pass judgment on people, on groups. And we know, listen, as a follower of Jesus, committed follower, Christian, listen, we would never kill somebody because they are blaspheming God or, or mocking God, but we sure can ask God to. We can declare in our own hearts, oh God, I would never kill, but hey, psst, you want to kill them? That is not our place. God is the only one who holds the right authority to pass judgment and to believe anything else is to place yourself in the position of God it's an arrogant statement to besiege God to wipe out people, his creation. That's his prerogative, not ours. Listen, we are not in the age of judgment. It's coming. We're in the age of grace, actually. Judgment is coming. Jesus, Jesus says this out of John 12. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not the judgment. Your job is to represent the salvation of Jesus Christ to the world, not judge them to hell or judge them to death. You can say, yes, this is truth. The Bible says this, but it's not your place. But all who reject me, now look at this, and my message will be judged on the day of judgment. So that day is coming, but it's his day of judgment. By the truth I have spoken, it's his great white throne of judgment, not your great white throne of judgment. 
He holds the right because he's a God of compassion and he's working on their lives. Our job is to represent him in every sector, to not compromise, to be distinct, to hold true, but not to judge people from the place as unto death. Of course we can judge what is right and wrong. We have the Bible. Of course we can speak truth. That's not God's best for you. Of course we can say, you need Jesus and without him, the Bible says you're gonna be, be, go to hell. I don't want you to, God doesn't want you to go to hell either. Of course we can, but it is not in our place to say, I want them to die. We are to serve those who are mocking God. We're to love those who are mocking God. We are not to compromise, but we are to serve. Your job is to serve them with truth and love. There's a couple disciples who thought it was their place to pass judgment too. Look at this passage out of Luke 9. Jesus sent messengers ahead of, to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And there was a, there's been a rift between Samaria and Jerusalem, and still is. When James and John saw this, they said, you rejected my Jesus? How dare you? Look, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. Jesus had to be like, James and John, what? have you not been around me for three years? Where have you been? Did I not just finish saying the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves? How is that serving those people right now? Were you not there when I gave the Sermon on the Mount? And I talked about if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as murder. You just skipped anger, went right to murder. And he rebuked them because it's not their place to pass judgment. Nor is it mine, nor is it yours, but it is your place to be lights, to be attractive for those God is dealing with, to pray for those mocking God, to remain true and not sell out your calling and compromise so you can get somewhere. You're to remain true you're to speak truth, and you're to love and serve the world Jesus died for. That's your job. You are to ask God to give you an opportunity to serve the broken, to serve the hurting. When, they're, when, they're, when they are broken and empty, be the life that's different than culture. Be a Daniel. Hold strong. Show love by speaking truth in love. Mourn when someone dies without Jesus. Don't celebrate. Have the heart of Christ. Who having the very nature of God himself, humbled himself even to death on a cross. Have that same nature. God has placed you in this time, in this place, in this culture to be the light. He's entrusted you with this, not to condemn it, but to point the way. We are called to be Daniels, 
and God will equip us to be so. We're going to continue to lean in and continue to be used of God. But we need to guard our hearts. We need to live lives differently than the rest of the world. And we need to be loving and kind and serve them because you have what they need. The Bible says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful. The Bible says who, how will they hear, speaking of the lost world, unless someone tells them. That's your job. That's my job. God never does anything alone. But he sure does invite us to stand before kings. He invites us to stand before leaders. He invites us to be strong and stand before school boards and stand before university professors. He invites us to stand when everyone else is compromising. We will stand. We will be the Daniel in this generation. You will be the Daniel in this generation. If not you, who? If not you, who? If not now, when? Right now, be a Daniel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that speaks to us. Thank you, God, that it continues to shape us. God, we open our hearts to you today, and we ask you first, God, cleanse our hearts. God, forgive us for picking up, us, for positioning ourselves in the place that is not us. It is you. Forgive us for wanting to be God and assuming we know what you want to do. But Lord, we ask you to forgive us that we could partner with you to be used of you. God, set us in the midst of darkness so we could be the light you've called us to be. Set us in the midst of brokenness and decay so that we can be the salt that brings healing. Lord, call us to be Daniels in this hour and this time. in your name. Just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If you're here and you'd say, Jason, I don't know Jesus and I know that judgment day is coming. Or if you're here today and you have been in church and you know the truth and you have just not allowed it to capture your heart, you have been living a double life. First off, every head bowed. If that's you today and you have been living a double life, you know, the, you know the language, but you have been living two lives. One in culture and one that pretends to be in Jesus. And you feel your heart being convicted right now. Nobody's looking around. I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand right now and receive forgiveness. Hold it up as bold, courageous Daniels. So many hands, so many hands. You can put your hands down. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of repentance. And you're going to receive forgiveness. You can feel your heart beating out of your chest. You still have a chance because you still hear my voice. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. And to give your life to Jesus. And to step out of the world you're in and step into the world of the kingdom. And be used of God. Let's all pray together. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. I'm so sorry. I've been a hypocrite. I've been in the world and I don't belong here. I belong with you. I give you my life. I give you my mind. 
I give you my body. I give you my spirit. Cleanse me. Give me a new start. From this day forward, I belong to you, God. I give you my life, God. Thank you for forgiving me. Use me to be a Daniel. Give me the courage to break off the relationships I should not be in. Give me the courage to delete phone numbers I need to delete today. Give me the courage to step away from that friend group that I know I shouldn't be in. Give me the courage to be a light in the midst of darkness. Give me the courage to step back to that friend group and tell them about you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, let's give God a hand today. I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor. If you raise your hand and you recognize, man, I need to make a change. I'm gonna ask you to fill out a card today or you can get on our website and fill out a card. I want us to help you to move forward. Satan has a plan for you and you were on it, but now you're on God's plan. He's gonna save your life. He's gonna use you. Send us an email, let us know, and we'll help you on the journey. Let's all stand to our feet. I'm gonna pray God's blessing over your life. If you can, just lift your hands just as an act of surrender to receive from God. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you and I ask you to bless these people, your people. You've died for them, you called them to be yours. God, I ask you that you would prosper them. God, I ask you that you would give them the power of the Holy Spirit to live as righteous in the midst of unrighteousness, to be lights in the midst of darkness, to be salt in the midst of decay. God, I ask you today that you would order their steps. Lord, that you would heal every marriage and heal every relationship within a family. God, I ask you that you would open doors that only you can open, that you would close doors that only you can close. God, I pray that you would begin to pour out your spirit on them, that they would receive insight and revelation about your word, about your truth, about what you're doing in their life. God, I ask you that you would position people of this house into places of influence and political leadership and, and leaders over schools and universities. God, I ask you that you would plant us in the place that we can lead and stand for you uncompromising. Lord, lead us and guide us. Open doors. Prosper us so we can continue to sow into your kingdom and be a part of what you're doing on the earth. In Jesus' name, we all say amen and amen. Come on, give God a hand today.